This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good evening, or should I say late afternoon and early evening, dear listeners. You are listening to the Sunday Twilight Show with Maud. It is 5 p.m. on Sunday, the 26th of February 2023, and you can join me using the chat function. We can discuss today's topic, which is management in education. Welcome! This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good afternoon, fellow educators and dear listeners. This is my 32nd radio show as your hostess, and I am delighted to share this exciting experience in your company. But first, I have to introduce myself for any potential new listener. I am Maud, a French citizen of French and West African ancestry. I have lived in the UK since 2008, and I'm a professional educator. I work in a secondary state school in North London, where I teach languages as well as humanities. Kids 3 to 4 French, Kids 3 History, Spanish and Geography. I also have experience as a teacher in the charity sector. So you can follow me on Twitter at ProfProfMFL. All views are my own. So today we're talking about a subject that concerns many people who work in a company or in a school. We're talking about management and management in education in particular. So this is mostly relevant to people who work in the education sector, people who have children attending schools in the education sector, people who work in teams, or groups or institutions, and as usual, the general, the curious and savvy. <laughs> what is management? Let's go back to our habit, which is looking at the etymology of words. If you look in the dictionary, and I check the Cambridge Dictionary for this, management means the control and, and organization of something. And by extension, the control and organization of a group of people who are responsible for a company. We could add for a school or any institution. Now I looked as um, I, I looked in the Merriam-Webster dictionary as well and there was a bit more on the business section. Generally in a business management means that we are looking at a process of how we administer and control the affairs of, a, of an organization or the affairs of a company or the affairs of a school. Whether it's a big school, a small school or not, the management obviously is going to be different. Now, the members of this organization interact with each other. It's either a business environment or an educational one, but the way they interact with each other is what we're going to look into when we talk about management. 
we also need to focus on how this institution functions, its objectives, its targets, and whether it reaches its objectives or its targets. So we are looking when we talk about management, how people organize themselves, how they interact with each other, but also do they meet their targets? And is this institution effective or not? Now, management is mostly dealing with human beings, people. But it is also when you look into an education setting, the building you're dealing with, because it has a direct impact on the people. Also the access to resources. I'm imagining that managing a school in a country where um, you don't have energy accessible. For instance, I'm thinking of uh, my, my home country, um, Guinea, my father's and my father comes from Guinea, Conakry. There is often electricity only for six to eight hours a day. So if you manage a school in Guinea, you need to take into account the difficulty of accessing energy, such as electricity. This has a direct impact on the people and on the way they're going to organize themselves. So we need to think about that. It's not just people, it's also the building and the resources and the energy they have access to. Now, if you deal with a school or a hospital, you might also have to consider food access because you need to feed these people in your building. Um, when it's a company, maybe you have a cafeteria for staff, or maybe they have to provide their own um, sustenance. But either way, you need to have storage facilities and you need to organize this. This is something that management has to deal with. I mentioned energy. Now, most companies have to deal with the same. So people, building, resources, food and energy. But there's another thing we need to, to talk about, and it's very specific to education, and that is the curriculum. Now, what is the curriculum? It's basically what are we going to teach the students and how are we going to teach our students the things we decided to teach them? So what we, we want them to learn, basically. Now, obviously, in education, management is crucial. If you want to work in management, or if you have to deal with people who work in management in education, you need to know that they're usually very good at multitasking. They have to have leadership skills. They have to be quite savvy as regard to the law. There's a lot of legal requirements involving uh, dealing with children, whether it's safeguarding, safety, health and safety, guidelines, protection. So it's a very important part of management is also knowing the law, the rule of law. When you have people, as we know, and their employees, we have human resources. So we need either one person or a team dealing with human resources. I mentioned health and safety, and this is paramount. When we are managing in education, we deal with children. Children are vulnerable because they are obviously little and they are not legally responsible, so they have to be protected and guided. So health and safety is a very big part of how to manage a school efficiently. And then since I would say the 1980s, we have to count and take into account new technologies because schools have to keep up with what's being launched, have to think about what's the best 
technology to invest in, to use, to promote in a school, and how to link it to the professional requirements that the students are going to face in their career and in their later lives. This is all very varied and diversified. But there is more. If you happen to work in a private school, you might have to think about land value and making an income out of your land. But you can also have this situation if you are a local school, which is state funded. You might have a hall with uh, some drama facilities, such as a stage, a sound system, uh, lights to uh, light the stage. You might want to make more money out of this facility in order to reinvest it in your school. So a school is people, but it's also a business and more and more so because we need more and more income. So it is also a company just as any other company. Now, the people who work in management, they usually have a profile which is linked to education, but not always. Most of them might have started as a teacher. Then they have to deal with parents, students, managers, other managers, but they also have to deal with board members, governors, local authority, um, the NHS, uh, people who are responsible for child protection or child medicine or child treatment for mental health. It could be CAMEDOC or just the NHS or nurses, if you have a nurse in your local authority. You also have to deal with police officers. Many schools have a police member on staff on roll. I have one in my school, for instance. So you have so many different professions you interact with in a daily basis. I actually think it's one of the most diverse companies you could work for, if you consider um, all these interactions. And then the children or the students, if they're a bit older. So being a manager in a school is the best training to work in any companies after that because you deal with so many different types of profiles, I don't think you could find anything more diverse than that. Education management is now a profession. And some people do not teach, but go straight into education management. It is something you can learn at university. And I'll give you two examples. You can do an educational leadership uh, course. It's an online course. At the University of Manchester, for instance, uh, it qualifies you, it gives you a qualification as an MA. It can last up to 24 months and you have conferences to attend and most of it is online. The workload would be 20 hours per week. You can enroll for next September if you like and the fees are £13,000. Now I'll give you another example. There is the Robert Kennedy College Swiss Quality Education and they offer an online course, which you could do anywhere in the world. It's a British MBA, and it's about management, education management, and it takes a year. So you, you can see, you can train online to work in education management, and it's quite a difficult course, but you can do it in your own time. Now, what does it entail if you work in management in a school? Well, let's be honest, 
if you're thinking of a Google type of office with um, a ping pong table and a cafeteria and bright colors, you're going to be disappointed. Education management is still very much looking like any um, 1990s office. Uh, it's got varied shades of blue and charcoal. It's quite bureaucratic. It's very hierarchical. There's a lot of legal requirements and it's state organized and very much still centralized. So it doesn't fit all types and there's very little flexible working available. So if you work in education management, you need to be aware of that. A lot of them do not have access to the lovely holidays that teachers have. So this is also something to bear in mind. You might end up working with children, even though you are part of an education management team where you don't have any teaching skills, because some members of management team have to uh, help and supervise and be seen out and about in between lessons. So you might have to work with children. Now, what we see developing is that you have to deal with individuals. You have to be a people skills person. You also need to be aware that there are regional and local specificities. You are not going to manage a school the same way if it's a seaside town location or if it's an urban, big urban um, location. You're also going to have to deal with sometimes very high staff turnover, maybe not in the management team, but in the teaching staff team. And now management in schools is facing very difficult demands that I don't think we had to face in the 70s or the 80s. We have climate difficulties where we need to adapt the way we build buildings and the way we choose our energy providers because of climate change. We have a lot of political interference, which might really make your job difficult at times if you're a manager. And you also have health issues interfering with the running of a school. Obviously, I'm thinking about COVID, but further than that, I'm thinking of a mental health, which is exploding at the moment. If you are on social media, you can see teachers are complaining a lot that they have a lot of students who suffer from mental health, a lot of parents who suffer from mental health. It has an impact on the teacher's mental health and on the way we deal with schools in general. So if you work in management, you have these new threats and these new issues to face. Climate change, mental health, uh, COVID, and also energy prices, if you're more in the side of the business and budgeting, and shall I say also immigration, because you might have an influx of new students. I'm thinking, for instance, students from Syria or students from Ukraine, and you need to cater for these students and these families. So working in education management, you will never be bored. You will always have a lot of work to do. Now, management is about organizing, but in schools, it is also about assessing. You constantly need to know that what you put in place is efficient, effective, working and improving your institution. But do we always remember what is the end game? Is it a finite game or an infinite game? 
are we there in the long run or are we just thinking short term? And who are you working for when you work for an education uh, institution in management? Are you working for the students? Well, you would hope that everybody is working in a school is thinking of students first because students are paramount. But sometimes when you visit schools, you might wonder, is management focusing on the students or are they sometimes losing track of who they're working for and thinking maybe more about other institutions? And I'm thinking about Ofsted or maybe the trust, if it's uh, organized as a trust, or the shareholders, if it's a private institution, or maybe catering for the parents if it's also either a state or private institution. So who are we working for when we're managing a school? And what is our end game? Are we just competing with another local school to get more students in? Or are we just competing with ourselves, trying to be the best school ever? These are very important leadership questions that I'm hoping everybody involved in school management is considering in their daily practice. As I said, you can learn education management at university. It is a highly professionalized um, field of work. So the people who work in management in schools are professionals. They are trained and they know what to do. Now, we can't ignore the fact that, that your management skills are not gonna depend eventually on the institution you work for. As I said earlier, you have the local specificities, whether you work in a poor area, a coastal town, or a wealthy suburban area, or I gave you the extreme example of some schools in my father's home country where they do not have electricity all day. They only have a few hours of electricity access. So the local and the regional and the national has an impact. But if we look just at the setup of your institution, it is really important to think that your management is going to vary depending on that institution. Just a quick reminder for anyone who's familiar with UK, United Kingdom's education system, and maybe you're just um, learning this if you are not. In England, in the United Kingdom, there's different types of schools. You have faith schools which are obviously religious schools. We have free schools, which are a new independent type of schools that receives funding from the government, but is free to operate within a more flexible framework. You have academies, which are now the majority of secondary schools. And then you have um, the local authority schools, which are also state schools, but operating differently. And then you have the very famous private schools, such as Eton, Howrow, um, all these schools that you see in the media or in BBC peer dramas and that we are very familiar with. So the education system in the UK is very much a, a reaction of UK politics. As I said, when you think of 
schools in the UK, a lot of people who are not from the UK are going to think about Hogwarts because this is something that is very popular. So you think about uniform, you think about beautiful medieval architecture, a very retrograde conservative way of seeing education with a conference type of teaching. Now, obviously, this is a cliche. The UK Polit the UK education system has been um, very much influenced by a Labour policy. The Labour government from 1997 to 2010 was headed by Tony Blair. Under his direction, Andrew Adonis was um, charge of the education policy. He was an education policy advisor. And he decided to start a new type of school in 2000. He is the architect behind the program for academization. So he created a system called academies, city academies. To thank him for his work, he was um, he became a lord and now he's known as Lord Adonis. Further than that, the Education Secretary in May 2000, who was David Blunkett at the time, a Labour Education Secretary, wanted a radical approach to improve education and he said he was going to give substantial resources to encourage the development of these city academies. So that was in 2000. Now, let's look at our time, 2023, so 23 years later, now we can see what happened. So the first three academies opened in 2002. It took time to set them up. One of them was in Bexley, the business academy, and another one was Greg City Academy in Hackney and the United, United the Unity City Academy as well. Now, you fast forward to 2023 and you look at the UK landscape with these new type of schools. In January 2019, there was nearly 3.8 million students who went to school in what we call an academy or a free school. So these new types of schools that were created first by the Labour government. This means that 72% of children age 11 to 16 are going to academies. Some of these academies are grouped under one umbrella of a bigger a bigger institution called a MAT M80 multi academy trust in numbers it means that we have 9041 academy schools that are educating 4.42 million children as um, the latest data reports in 2020 this is a lot and this came to counteract the influence of local authority schools under the local authority guidance. Now they only have 12,988 schools, mostly primary schools, under their care, and they educate 3.89 million children. So Lord Adonis had an intention behind this decision. He wanted to breach, and I quote, breach the educational Berlin Wall between private and state education. So that was his plan. And to, to succeed, he created the academies. 
Now, I don't know if um, the burning wall has been destroyed. The allegory might not be very adequate, but we still have a very strong private sector. Only 7% of children are educated in the private sector, yet most of high-powered jobs in the city, in London, are still occupied by people who went to a private school. So I'm not sure the academies were efficient in that way, if that was the aim. A lot of people were criticising this new format of academy. The unions weren't happy with it. They said it was a waste of money. Some people said it was to privatise education. After 20 years of academies, are schools doing better in the UK? Well, according to the Department of Education, we don't really see a difference. So, <laughs> as with hindsight, with the benefit of hindsight, we don't really have data that proves that the academies did change much in the quality of education delivered to children in the UK. What we know is that most students now in secondary school are taught in an academy, and this format influences the way the schools are managed. Academies are supposed to have more flexibility. The head teacher can hire his own staff. He doesn't need to go through the local authority. The head teacher can choose the class sizes he wants and limits them accordingly. The head teacher can have a choice in the curriculum. He can decide if he wants to do uh, the English baccalaureate or different GCSEs. And the head teacher can spend his budget uh, according to his own decision, as long as the school of govern the board of governors agree, obviously. Academies were encouraged to operate more like a business. And the introduction of this financial expertise was supported by a sponsor. So some academies were allowed to use a sponsor and could diversify their income sources. So academies are still very much like any other schools in the sense that their budget is given by the state. So they are funded by taxpayers. They are inspected by Ofsted and they still follow the same rules to admit students. They still have to treat students the same way as in any other schools and they cannot exclude students um, too often. So their freedom is still very much under the control of the government via the Department of Education. I would say the only flexibility is really in employment. Academic Trust employ their own staff and they can choose to change the ethos of the school, particularly that way. A lot of criticism was sent at, thrown at academies and so much so that they had to uh, publish in um, April 2016, the Department for Education published a white paper. You can check it out on um, gov.uk, the website. And they were trying to give 10 facts you need to know about academies in order to promote them. I just found one line that I thought was really telling, and I'm going to quote in that um, Department for Education paper. It says, schools, which are academies, will still be able to work closely with good local authorities, as most academies already choose to. And I love the choice of language here. What is a good local authority? 
So that was published in 2016. Does it mean a, an efficient local authority that doesn't have a deficit? Is it financial? Or does it mean a good local authority that is in line with the government? Very good question, isn't it? Now, as I said, management depends on the structure. So academies added a little bit more flexibility to the system. And they allowed for sponsors. Sponsors could come and help underperforming schools. They could uh, act via the governing body. And they could also ask businesses or faith groups or universities or individual philanthropists to get involved in decision making in school via financing or via attending school of governors meeting. This is interesting because it allows schools to diversify their income source. And I know some schools have made very good use of this and started to, pr to promote uh, science or different languages, such as the Mandarin program for excellence, for instance. So it allows to, to really choose their field and work on it. So that definitely is something positive that we got out of academies. Now, other than Ofsted, which is here to assess schools, there is also the ESFA, which is much less famous in the media. The ESFA is the Education and Skills Funding Agency. This is an executive agency that is also part of the Department for Education. And if you have a complaint that has gone through all the school levels of complaining and then offset, you can then address the ESFA. This is for internal complaints procedures mostly. And we add to that another layer of management and inspection in these academies. There is the regional schools commissioners appointed by the Dep Department for Education again. So you see this idea that we have more flexibility. We still have a very bureaucratic, centralized, heavy management structure. And the regional school commissioners are divided in eight separate regions within England and they monitor school performance, strategies, and decisions. How do they do that? I'm not so sure. I'm sure one needs an education management degree to understand the functioning of regional schools commissioners. That might be the subject of a later podcast. I did mention free schools. There were um, started by Michael Gove, which, who was a Tory uh, education secretary, and he wanted schools to have more control over what they do. Because if you delegate more decision-making and more power to schools, we were hoping that it would allow managements to, to increase the value of schools. So these free schools are still funded by taxpayers, but they can set their own pay and conditions for staff, choose their own school terms and school days, and they don't have to follow the national curriculum. So they're a bit more free than local authority schools. Free schools are not-for-profit not for school, like academies, and they can be set up by charities, universities, private schools, faith groups, or just teachers, parents, or local businesses. So pretty much everyone 
or anyone can start their own free schools. The first free schools opened in September 2011, and they are usually an answer to demands from very specific groups, whether it's a religious group or a group of parents who wanted something very precise about their local community. Some free schools are very, very successful now. They've been up and running for at least 10 years, and we can see the results already. They have freedom to accept who they want as far as staff and students are concerned. So they are selective, which makes a big difference. Obviously, I'm not going to talk about faith schools too much. I'm just going to say that they do get funding from the state. And uh, academies, are, just like free schools, are not for-profit institutions. So all these institutions have different setups. Their, I would say their skeleton is slightly shaped differently, but they all are receiving state fundings, which also has an impact because if everybody is free to hire their own staff or choose their curriculum, but everybody has very difficult budgets to deal with, with lots of cuts, their freedom is obviously going to be impacted and diminished. So this is definitely something to keep in mind. As I said, most primary schools in England are still under the guidance of the local authority, up to 77%. But it's a completely different landscape when you look at secondary schools only. 36% of secondary schools are in a big academy trust, 31% only local authority, 26 are academies, and 7% are free schools. So most of the schools in secondary are academies. Now, if you come, just like myself, from a very centralized country, France, with a very strong socialist past, you might be a little bit concerned by the way schools are seen as businesses in the UK. However, if you look back to history, you can see that schools started as businesses since the 14th, 15th and 16th century. One of the oldest trusts is the Tonbridge School. I mean, it's a private school. And the Tonbridge School has been part of the worshipful company of Skinners for centuries. It was obviously a trade, a group of traders, the Skinners, and they had set up a school and the school is still operating. So businesses in education have always been part of the English educational DNA. Now, the difference is that since the 1980s, we started to see education as something to be modeled along what US corporations look like. So I'll give you an example. In 2004, we had the first big corporation called Cognita, which started an academy chain in the UK. And now they have 67 schools with 30,000 pupils in the UK, but also abroad. So they are multinationals, the same way you would think about Google or Coca-Cola. So from the 1980s onwards, or you could say it became really 
obvious and normalized in the, the year 2000, the noughties, basically parents became customers and they were looking at league tables and they were doing their shopping, choosing the right school the way you would choose to buy grocery shopping or furniture. So what are the advantages of having a big company owning schools or being involved in education? Well, there is definitely a very big advantage, and this is for the head teacher, because the head teacher is feeling less lonely and feeling more supported. If they need to, they can receive help, they can access human resources offices and also lawyers. Head teachers are quite likely to be the target of procedures or prosecutions. When they belong to an academy, they have the team of lawyers working for the trust that can help them protect themselves. So definitely the head teacher feels more secure. London is a huge capital in Europe and it's the hub of educational change. Most umbrella owned schools, most trusts, M80, are centered around London. Some people complain that some of these schools have a blueprint and they copy that all over the place and they do not have identities in these individual schools. But some schools also think the issue with academies is that they are profit motivated ventures that might not think about the child as a person, but more as a product. As they are considered non-for-profits, that criticism might not have been accurate anymore. This still applies for private schools, however. But with hindsight now, we can see after 20 years, the way we chose to organize our schools, the structure we decided on, hasn't really changed the performance of the schools. A think tank called Reform and an education body, SS80, found very, very few uh, percentages differences in terms of the education provided by local authority schools and academies. So not a drastic difference, really. If you look at GCSE results only, academies do not perform much better. And who says that? Well, Ofsted. I quote, inspection evidence, research and analysis continues to find that while becoming an academy can be beneficial from some schools, there is not a clear nor substantial difference between the performance of academies and schools maintained by local authorities. And this was from fullfact.org regarding the difference between academies and state schools without the academy status. So what do you see here? Well, you see that management has been controlled by the state and by politicians who make decisions. These decisions haven't really had any impact that we can measure. Yet, the way these institutions are created or transformed has a direct influence on the way we manage these schools. So before we get into the nitty gritty of what managing a school is, as far as people and teamwork and models are concerned, 
I'm just going to let you relax with a little bit of news. So bear with me and we'll be back right after the news. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. STV reports that a council in Scotland could become the first to open schools for four days per week. According to the report, West Dunbartonshire Council is currently considering the proposals alongside a range of other measures as part of a bid to plug a £15 million funding gap. Currently, primary schools in the county are open to pupils from 9am to 3pm each day, with secondary schools running an asymmetric week with seven periods on Mondays and Tuesdays and six periods daily Wednesday to Friday. The new proposals would see primaries open Monday to Thursday with hours of 8.30am to 3.45pm and secondary schools running an eight-period day, Monday to Thursday, beginning at 8.20am and ending at 4.10pm. The plans were shared with parents and are for the 2023-24 academic year. The other proposals being considered for education across the council are a reduction in the number of learning assistants, a review of grants for uniform, removal of breakfast clubs in primary schools and swimming lessons for pupils in primary four. Western Bartonshire Council says the plans would have no impact on teaching time or teacher numbers, but that savings would be made in costs for transport and energy usage. It does acknowledge that the proposals may impact upon childcare arrangements for parents, and that consideration must be given to support vulnerable children. Plans for fifth date provision for those children is being explored. The plans are likely to find favour with unions as during June 2022's AGM for Education Institute Scotland, delegates backed a motion calling for a move to a four-day week, stating that it could improve the standard of teacher well-being. There is some concern, however, on the possible impact of the sort of move on those with non-teaching roles in schools. The Council will consider proposals during a meeting on March 1st, 2023, before any further steps to consultation can be taken. The Channel Island of Guernsey has released the finding of its latest young people survey. The results seem to indicate that vaping in schools is on the rise and that there has been an increase in bullying reports amongst children in year 8 and year 10. In better news, 40% of pupils surveyed believe their school now takes bullying seriously, a significant increase in the 26% figure from 2019. There has also been a significant uplift in the numbers of young people who cycle or walk to school, from 26% in the 2016 survey to 40% in 2022. Year 6 pupils walk or cycle the most. In terms of health, 40% of those surveyed admitted to trying vaping, although cigarette usage was down at only 15%. More Year 10 girls vape than Year 10 boys. The survey is completed every three years. Finally, Sir David Attenborough has praised Sunderland University's decision to join BAFTA's Albert Education Partnership 
to teach students the importance of creating sustainable content. Students on Sunderland's MA Media Production Programme will benefit from teaching on topics such as the science of climate change, the environmental impact of the film and TV industries, sustainable pro production practices and creating content with strategic environmental purpose. Sir David said that saving the planet is now a communications challenge. Whilst Gary Stubbs, leader of the MA programme at Sunderland, said the university's film and TV department is set to take green issues to task. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm asking a question that you don't dare to ask. There are some things in life that you're desperate to know, but just can't find the right person to ask. And when you try to search for it, incognito, of course, the answer still eludes you. Whether you're returning from, are on, or have already completed your half-term break, you can count on me to address the tech issues that face us in our classroom. Today, I ask, what is that bloody big hole in my desk for? You know, the round one that's too big for a cup holder, and if I poke any wires through it, the second I unplug and change rooms, they tie themselves into an array of knots that a master sailor would be proud of. If you're driving or operating heavy machinery, pull over, I found out what it's for, and found a use for it. It's called a desk grommet, and it is for wires. But it's for wires when you're not hot desking and you're staying at the same desk with the same equipment. Some clever companies have come up with some solutions that you may want to get your school to invest in. The most basic is a flexible rubber desk grommet. This simply shoves into the hole and has a star-shaped rubber grip. Pull wires through it, and they won't slip back through. I found a pack of three for seven pounds. Bargain. Invest in a bit more, you can get a kit to make it a USB charging station. Now that will be rather more useful for bouncing from lesson to lesson. The cheapest I could find was around 20 pounds. Using the search term desk grommet cable management, I found for 27 pounds, a grommet with a standard UK plug socket, two USB charging ports, and an RJ45. For the non-geek, an RJ45 is the ethernet cable socket you plug your computer into to get the internet using a wire. This goes to show there's a tech solution for everything. Do you have a tech question that you're afraid to ask? Why not send it to at TT Radio Official? I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. So, dear listeners, we've been talking about management in schools in the UK. We have um, looked at the fact that the way institutions are modelled has an impact on management. But we also have noticed that so far, whether politicians insist on restructuring schools or not, the results haven't proven to be very effective. What really matters when we talk about management in education is how we deal with people, teamwork, and also the management team model that we use. So how to approach management in education? Well, we cannot forget the fact that we are dealing with very specific groups when we talk about education management. We have the child with very specific needs. We have the teacher with some targets and a very precise role, but that seems to be constantly evolving and with a lot more responsibilities than we thought at the beginning when we started thinking about state school education on a massive scale uh, since the 60s, for instance. 
Then we have the groups. We have the school in itself with the business manager, the cooking staff, the cleaning staff, the caretakers, the librarians, school nurse, if you're lucky to have one, police officer, they're very likely to be in um, one school now in secondary schools, and also the teaching staff and supporting staff. And then you have an entity, which is the classroom. And it has very specific dynamics that have nothing to do with corporate management. What goes on in a classroom is not really something that can be transferred. It's not a skill that you can transfer into the corporate world because we're dealing with children and we're dealing with um, unconscious needs as well as conscious needs. So when we talk about managing a school, we talk about all these very specific entities and these very specific people. You need to think about the learning because that's the target of every school. We need to develop learning and to make sure the students are learning. But then you also need to add all these roles we've taken on board. Uh, we have a safeguarding role, pastoral role. Sometimes we act as a charity where we provide food for children in need. We provide um, cleaning facilities. We are considering sometimes buying washing machines in schools because students come with dirty uniforms. So schools have a lot of management skills and roles that have been added over the years. And then we need to think about maximizing communication opportunities with families, we have a lot of interactions with NHS and social workers, and we have general national issues influencing our classrooms. I've talked about the war in Ukraine and Syria. I've talked about climate change and also epidemics. So all these have a direct influence on our management. How does a management team evolve? Well, if you start a new school or if you hire new people, the team development model is the same as in a corporation that sells soap or software. First, you have the formation of a team when you choose people and then you put them together. They might be very different. They might um, have very different skills. So at the beginning, they're going to be cautious. They're going to observe each other a lot. It's going to be a very superficial talk. Oh, what do you do at the weekend? Do you have children? What are you up to? And then they get to know each other. And how we manage a team, I mean, there's so many models and strategies. Um, it depends on the setup. Is it going to be online? Is it going to be face-to-face? -face? Are they going to work um, following a rota or not? So all these things vary. But it's still the same. You have that formation of a team and they get to know each other. And after a certain amount of time spent together, as in all groups, and I'm sure it's pretty similar with some mammals, some other mammals, you get an adjustment. Each people are gonna find their place in the hierarchy. You're gonna have the ones that are gonna start to emerge as leaders, decision makers. You're gonna have the ones who are still staying on the periphery observing, and you're going to have people get more assertive and share their opinions. This is when it gets tricky. And as a management team, 
or as a manager, you need to be aware of that. It's a difficult time. You need to pace the people and pair them to the best of their abilities. People start worrying about their place and you might lose some members of staff at that stage if they feel like they're undervalued or they don't have enough space to progress. So as a leader, you need to, and a manager, to remember how such a vulnerable time happens and what to do to make sure it works well. And then after the adjustment has been done, your team knows each other and then you can start building trust. And this is something I think we are really failing at in many schools in the UK. I'm looking at teacher retention. I see young teachers training and then disappearing after four years, there's half of them gone. So there is a big issue in the team development model in schools. We do the formation very well, start working on the adjustment. And it seems like at the third level, when trust is supposed to be built, we fail and then we lose staff. Well, it starts from the top. So the leader has to be a leader, not just an authority figure. And the leader, leader have to, has to say that he's not always the one who knows everything. He can say, I don't know. And he needs to also be able to ask for help from other members of staff. When you ask for help, you show your vulnerable vulnerability, but you're also open. And being open is the start of building trust. So trust is super important for management teams in education, and we need to think about it more. The fourth level after formation adjustment and trust is debate and this is when we get to changing the way we work we work we bring different solutions and ideas together and then we evolve and this is something that we rarely do in schools i think we're short of time and also we have that authoritative hierarchical model, which is not so conducive of democratic principles of debating. And if you don't allow debate, then it stifles progress and change. And then if you're in a good place, if you're in a good school with good management, you're going to have that buy-in time where everybody is happy, their voices have been heard, we made a decision, it's democratically followed, people agree on the goals and people are committed, let's work together. And then if you've reached that stage, the last uh, layer is performance. And this is when you look back and you see if your team has achieved their goal and you should all be proud because you've done it and the system functions. So that's the team development model. As I said, it's not working very well in schools because we have uh, staff retention issues and because we do not have maybe all the ways that in some corporations they make debating work. To have a good management, you need to develop your staff and you need to make them feel empowered about it. Every school is really focused on measuring performance. We measure the performance of the students. We then use that as a measure, as a criteria for assessing the performance of the teachers. But is it the best way to assess? And also, how do we assess? Um, we did a round table once and we asked 
lots of different people worked in schools, how they are assessed in their practice. And they said, at best of time, I get observed for half an hour once a year. And then someone tells me what my good points are, what I've achieved and what I need to work on for next time. And that's it. Now, is this continuous performance management? Is it assessment? No, it feels more like a checking exercise. Some people are never assessed. We talked to some teaching assistants and they said they were never assessed because as their pay grade can't evolve because they are fixed pay and there's no other way, they can't get up in the scale. They're either TA or they do something else then they don't get assessed. If you're not assessed, you feel like your work is not valued and also you feel like you are maybe not important enough. And if the system is not working, people will lose trust in the system. So performance management is actually really important if it's done well. We need to give feedback in a positive way and we need to give feedback that makes people empowered and gives them a kick or a oomph or energy to achieve better next time. By the way, showing the criteria used to make the assessment is essential, but very often it's not clear from the beginning. We are facing major challenges in education in the world, not just in the UK. If you look at a website called data2biz.com, yeah, there's a very good article made by Aria Barty, and she she just analyzes 11 different types of challenges. She says the issues are poor inclusive knowledge. So we don't really know how to make inclusion work. We have maybe rigid methods of assessment, a curriculum that's maybe too rigid or too big and too hard to cover. We have inaccessible environments, I'm talking physically and mentally. For instance, we don't have buildings that are inclusive for people with low mobility, but we also have a curriculum that doesn't always include eth different ethnicities and maybe people who are neurodivergent. Our, sense, our policies are maybe not sensitive enough and not understanding enough. For instance, I don't think we take care of our children who are vulnerable, vulnerable or in poverty, in extreme poverty. I think poverty is very often considered as something to acknowledge, but we are not doing anything to palliate its effect in schools. Teachers might be burned out. Teachers do not have the time to collaborate with each other. The government is seen as someone who inspects an, an institution that inspects but doesn't train or doesn't support. Parents are giving up or seen as not involved in education. There's a lack of effective equipment. We don't always have access to the most modern technology or maybe we do but it's out of date or it's just not functional for the type of students you have. And then sometimes teaching is of poor quality and sometimes teachers don't have the right attitude. So these are 11 challenges facing the education industry. And yet, 
This is forty billion pounds a year spent on the workforce. Forty billion pounds a year in the UK spent to educate our young people. Schools, whether they're free schools, academies, or local authorities, get forty billion pounds for their workforce. So you would expect that after spending so much money, we're going to get effective, efficient workforce with very good planning, well deployed, and that it's going to make our schools leaders in the world. Is it though? Can I just remind you? There's a strike again next week coming. So if teachers are striking, are we really? Using these forty billion pounds a year effectively, the Department for Education is pretty much aware of the challenges that the education management is uh, experiencing, and they wrote a paper. It's a, it's accessible online, and it's uh, it was published in two thousand eighteen, and it said that they were giving management tools to help schools, and that the goal of every school was opportunities for all. That's a nice goal, and they explain it as we want to secure the best outcome for pupils and the best value for money for the taxpayer. Are we getting the best value for our forty billion pounds a year? I'm not so sure. Now, there is a lot of issues we've faced since two thousand and twenty. I'm just going to remind you what professionals in corporations are asking the government to consider as far as education is concerned. Corporations, future employers want st- students who are equipped with lifelong learning skills. They don't really need. Schools to teach exactly the 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 field that they're going to work in. What they need is to teach children to be self learners, independent learners who can learn on the job and know how to get access to the knowledge they need in the future. Employers want literate people with good numeracy and literacy skills, very good social skills. People who are team players and know how to work and socialize in groups, but they see institutions that spend a lot of money on education and that are providing society with students who have very big skill gaps. This leads to unemployment or mismatched careers. We have an inadequacy because of the way we manage schools. So, the government came out with a paper. It's accessible on the Department for Education website, and it's called SRM. One more acronym for us. So SRM stands for School Resource Management. And I went through that paper for you, so you don't have to do it. It was published in June two thousand twenty-two, so last summer, and it's entitled "School Resource Management: Building a Stronger System." Well, it better be strong. We're spending four billion on this yearly. I'm going to quote from this paper. It says, "We expect all schools and academy trusts to place school business knowledge at the centre of leadership decision making." So again, you see that an emphasis on the corporate thinking, the corporate way of 
seeing thing, the corporate perspective as uh, something to embed in the education system, in management. We're very much dependent on that way of seeing things. Some acknowledgements are made. I noticed that they were saying the role of the teaching assistant is paramount. They came out with the term the parent pledge and they wanted any child that falls behind in English or maths to receive very good one-to-one -one support so that they can reach their potential. That sounds great, but we know that TAs are paid very, very little and they're not always trained or recognized for the hard work they do. In that same paper, the SRM paper, the School Resource Management, the government said we needed to offer flexible working arrangements for staff. Now that sounds wonderful and a lot of companies have provided their staff uh, with this since COVID. I think it's rather sad that we had to wait for a pandemic for employers to realize that staff could work differently. Since we invented the internet, we didn't need to be sitting in an office in town. But the Department for Education acknowledges it, that if you want to keep experienced staff and promote well-being, you need to be flexible and let the management work in a different way. We just heard in the news bulletin that one school is thinking of trialing a full day weekday, week. That sounds wonderful. I know they have done it in Florida and um, the parents struggled at first to get childcare sorted. And once that was established, everybody was happy. Why did it take us so long to think about this? In that same paper, School Resource Management, the Department for Education says they started making hiring easier by providing a website, Teaching Vacancies, it's called. It's been up since 2019 and it's a national service to list teaching jobs. Is that really the best management tools we could dream of? I'm not sure, particularly as if you're a teacher or if you work in schools, you know that there's already a website that does that and is quite successful at it and it's TESS, T-E-S. But the, the, the Department for Education thought they wanted to bring their own version. Why not? And they also came out with a good idea and we have to applaud the idea. It's the School Rebuilding Program, SRP, announced in 2020 which is said to be transforming buildings. They want to build a new environment with 500 new schools that operate a net zero operation. So it means that they don't consume too much energy to run. A passive house school sounds amazing to me. I doubt the building will be as efficient as a passive house technology. But if they start putting that in place, I would applaud it. We need to be resilient to the effects of climate change. We need to avoid building schools on flooded area. Can I just say that a lot of schools are actually built um, near riverbeds. So this is at risk of flooding. And also we need to make sure that we have enough ventilation to avoid airborne diseases. Something comes to mind. So in that paper, they also said that we need to be aware of the challenges that our young people are going to face when they go in the work in the workplace. And I think it's a good idea to always have in mind 
we should all make sure all our students have the three R's, writing, reading, and arithmetic. That's the basis of education. And sadly, there's too many children in seven who come into secondary school and are have a reading age of a five-year-old. We need to do better. But to that, we need to add the three E's. And the three E's stand for education, entrepreneurship, and employment. This is what we need to think about, said according to industry experts, to provide the work the workplace with very good skilled workers. We are faced with challenges. I would call it demotivation. There's a demotivation in staff and there's a demotivation in students. A study in America asked a panel of teenagers what they thought about schools. And one out of three teenagers said they were bored. Of course, they were going to say they were bored. They're teenagers, but I'm, I'm being a bit biased there for comical purposes. But 80% of students feel stressed, and that is more worrying. Being bored is actually healthy, because when you're bored, you need to trigger your creative juices in order to come out with something to entertain yourself. So you build on creativity and resilience. When you're stressed and stressed too often and stressed in a position where you can't fight or flight because you need to be behaving properly in a school environment, you are stressing st students and you're creating anxiety. And this is health. Um, it, this is a health issue. We're deteriorating the health of the young generation. To the point that 34% of these American teenagers who were asked a question about it said they felt depressed. I think it's a Zoomers situation. We have more and more mental health issues in schools. We have self-harm. We, ha we have anxiety. We have depression. <coughs> and this is, this should be our number one priority. We need to investigate and we need to stop it. Exam culture has too much power over the way we manage our schools. Exam culture is not helping forming a skilled workforce because the way our exams are, are set up, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't make sure, it doesn't make the skills predominant. It doesn't prove that you have the skills. I'll give you an example in my practice. You can do a GCSE French and you can get away with having a five without being able to go to a bakery in front and order a croissant properly. Does it show you have a skill in that language? No, but it just justifies spending five years in a school facing a French teacher and all the money that that costs and then having a grade at the end. You're not going to be performing well if you have to go to France, even as a tourist, to order in a coffee or restaurant. But you've proven that you followed a course in a UK school. I don't think this is helping getting a skilled workforce at all. There is a skill gap between graduates and the professionals in the employment field. And we need to be able to form students who become professionals who know how to reduce that gap by being self-learners and by being motivated and independent. Because of the pressure from exam, because of the fact that students are demotivated and teachers are so demotivated they leave the profession, we get to a deadly cocktail 
a vicious circle where it gets worse. We have a lack of differentiation in exams, but we also have a lack of differentiated learning. We can't judge every student with one single exam. It is no longer relevant and it doesn't prove anything. So we come to that conclusion. We have schools that cost a lot of money with professional managers who have been trained and have gone to university and they did an MBA or an MA in education management. And yet we even spent lots of money on restructuring schools. We went from local authority schools to academies. We started free schools in the year 2010. And we get to a general landscape in the UK with failing schools in the sense that the students are unhappy, they're self-harming, they're stressed, they're not particularly resilient, they're struggling with exam pressures, and teachers are leaving the profession, and we're on strike. Not a very happy picture. But we know how to go against this, because it's been studied, and there's research that's been published. If you look at Nikki Phillips' article on the six secrets of school turnarounds, there was a study made out of 160 academies. The Center for High Performance is a team of professional academics from the University of Oxford and Kingston, and also the London Business School. They were following Dr. Alex Hill, who is the center's director. And altogether, they studied 160 schools. And they found that high-performing academies are high performers but sometimes they are seen as very successful because they send their unruly pupils to other schools and sometimes they pay other schools to take their unruly pupils. It's called off-rolling. It's in a bid to improve exam results. Does it solve the problem? Does it reduce the skill gap? Does it deal with motivation? Not quite. So they came out with recommendations for school in order to improve management. And, and moving difficult students to another school is not a sign of good management. It's just telling the books, isn't it? So this six secrets of school turnaround, as revealed by Dr. Alex Hill, is pretty clear. And it can be counterintuitive. When I first read it, I thought, oh, I wouldn't have thought that. But then it sort of makes sense if you dive into the data. According to Hill, there's do's and don'ts, but there's basically six secrets. So the first secret, secret is you don't need to deal with teaching. You don't need to improve teaching. Teaching is usually okay. And teaching can be excellent, but the issue is not with teaching, and it shouldn't come first. What you need to do is dealing with behaviour. Not the behaviour of the teachers, by the way, the behaviour of the students. The second secret is do not permanently exclude disruptive pupils. So that can be counterintuitive for me, because I've, I've met students who were actually a danger and a threat towards others and the police was involved and I'm just really wary of how could we keep students who are definitely a threat to others 
staff and other students in the institution. But I'm happy to analyze how we can keep them in the school. The third secret is don't use a zero tolerance behavior policy. And a lot of three schools have been relying on this, but this only works with a certain population. And this only works if you exclude the ones who don't fit in. So I kind of see that the secret number two, don't exclude disruptive pupils. And secret number three, don't have a zero tolerance, are kind of same side of the same coin, two sides of the same coin. Now, the fourth secret is another don't, and it's don't hire a super famous head who's going to focus on GCSE results. And here I'm quite, I'm quite confused because we've seen heads, very famous, successful ones, turn a school around very effectively. But maybe they did so by excluding disruptive pupils or by off-rolling them, sending them to another school for the GCSE result, or by having a zero tolerance behavior policy. So I say, let us listen to the do's now. The fifth secret is do plan that your finances are going to be suffering for a few years until the school is turned around. And that makes sense. Because if you want to hire very good staff, it's going to cost you more. And also, if you want to start a lot of different strategies to bring the school to its best features, it's going to cost you money. So it makes sense that you might be in a bigger deficit for a few years until you recover later on. And the sixth secret is a do, and it says you need to invest more resources into poorer areas, such as rural and coastal schools. But I think that secret is at national level, because if you're a school in urban cities, you don't have any potential to help any other school in rural or coastal areas. So let's look at what it means exactly, these six secrets to turn around a school, according to Dr. Hill. How to change a school around through good management is supposedly simple if you follow these rules. You need to manage differently and you need to be flexible. If you have students who are socially difficult, they're disruptive, they're vulnerable, they have difficult home lives, they, are not in a, they don't have the mental free space to learn because they have so many issues to deal with at home. You should not exclude these students, but you shouldn't leave them in the classroom either because they are disruptive. So according to Dr. Hill, you need to manage them differently. And you need to give them a differentiated learning and a differentiated assessment, which means if your target for these disruptive, vulnerable children is to teach them how to behave in a class or just how to bring their stuff without forgetting, um, having a good positive hygiene of life, going to sleep early at night, eating breakfast at the breakfast club, uh, being respectful and not shouting. If that's the, the only target you set them up, you need to make sure they, they reach them. And too often, we set these targets for these students and then we assess them on other things. We need to manage expectations and give them a different pathway. Until their behavior is improved, they shouldn't be disrupting any lessons 
and you should work on their target, which is their behavior. And it slows down their access to literacies and numeracy. It's actually better because they need to learn how to behave before they can learn how to count and read. The other secret was you teach children from primary all the way up to all the way up to secondary with the same set of rules. So it's me, it's basically being consistent in behavior policy. It might be easier if you're in the same trust, but I guess if you have a very strong connection with your local primary school feeders, the one that the students are coming from in year six, when they reach year seven, you can achieve that. Having a consistent behavior policy in all the institutions that the kids have been through, from nursery to primary to secondary. Regarding the super heads hired to come in and change a school, it's, the danger is that they are going to focus everything on English, maths, divert a lot of resources and money to get good grades at these results, and then it will badly affect the arts, languages, PE, and drama and music. And also, this is only to fit into the exam type tables and the GCSE results. It's a very narrow vision of what going to school represents, and it's not going to help with closing the skills gap for potential future employers. So let's forget about the superheads then. The way we can improve good management, according to Dr. Hill, is by being flexible and persistent. And if it costs too much money for the first few years, we need to accept it until the schools are financially viable and then we can show and measure the changes that have been made and the performance results. Good management takes into account the fact that sometimes you need to spend more money to achieve the targets you've set. I think it's a very interesting take. I'm not sure it's always possible to do so. I did mention that some students have such strong, difficult needs that there might be a danger for the local community and they might have to be uh, expelled. But it's only in extreme cases. What comes out of this is that to turn around a school and justify all that money we're putting into education to get a better outcome, what we need to work first on is another type of management and that is behavior management and behavior management is very very particular it only concerns schools this is the crux the cornerstone of any good school management if behavior is not acceptable if behavior is below standards your school management will never be efficient good behavior is ingrained in the school community when behavior is excellent in and outside school, when there's a clear disciplinary procedure, when staff are trained and they manage behavior the same way, and when senior staff are also very involved and supports. How do you measure if a school has a good behavior management? Well, drive past the school when the students go home see how they behave outside. Ask the local off-license owner how the students are behaving when they use his facilities, his shop. Look around and see if students are walking sensibly in the school and when they go to the toilet. 
check the state of this toilet. See how visitors are welcomed by the students and the members of staff. Ask the dinner ladies how they feel about the behavior. Ask supply cover teachers how they feel about the way they're treated when they go to the school. This is how you can measure if our schools are managed effectively. So I hope you enjoyed this little dive, deep dive into management. This is a subject that could be covered over many, many podcasts. I'm always delighted to explore new areas of the education system in your lovely company. We have established that management is crucial in corporations as in schools, but management in school is very particular because we're dealing with children and children are human beings who have very particular needs and um, we need to support them in the best ways. Managing students, managing staff are two very different things, but whatever the way we manage and whatever institution we work at, what matters is that school behavior management is good. And unless this is established, there is no other type of management that can make it better. I wish you a lovely week, dear listeners, and I hope you are going to enjoy your Sunday evening. I'm looking forward to spending time in your company next Sunday. Thank you. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.